I encourage you this morning, if you do have your Bible, to have it open, or if you don't have one, to find one quickly, because we will be looking fairly closely at the text this morning. Well, good morning, Chapel Street. It's great that we can gather this morning and be able to look at God's Word. I thought just before I open in prayer that we consider the opening verses that come from Revelation, because it's very helpful for us to think about how we should respond this morning as we look at God's Word. So if you look at Revelation chapter 1, it says in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Or just literally, blessed is the one who reads it, hears it, and keeps it. Blessed is the one who reads it, hears it, and keeps it. We want to be blessed this morning. We want to be hear what God has to say to us. But it's important, I think, just to consider that little progression before we dive into the text. Firstly, it says, blessed is the person who reads it, but it doesn't just stop there. Because it's quite easy for us to read things, but not really hear what we've read or comprehended what we've read. I've had times where I've sent a text message and I've got a quick reply and it's quite clear what they've been replying to hasn't actually been what I've sent them in the text message. They've just assumed they understood what was being said. So, it's a, so reading it's not enough. We need to read it and then we need to hear it. It needs to go in. But as we read God's word, is hearing it in the sense that it goes in, is that enough? No. Otherwise, we're just filling ourselves with knowledge. But having that knowledge is an important step to that final step. Blessed is the one who keeps it. My NIV has it as takes it to heart. Later on, the NIV translates the same little phrase or word as obeys it, because that's literally what it means. To keep the word of God is to obey it. And so that's our challenge this morning, is that as we have read God's word, we might now hear it, it would go in, but then that would work a change in us and come out in our actions. That's where the blessing comes from. The word blessed simply means happy at its first level. If we ignore the word of God, we will never truly know what happiness is or what it is to live a happy life. But if we delight ourselves in God's word and we are changed by it and shaped by it, then we will truly know what it is to live a happy life. But we need to also consider that word blessed in the light of the fall. On account of ignoring the word of God, people entered into sin came under the curse. But the wonderful thing through God's word, we find the way of salvation, the way to blessing. And that's where the ultimate happiness is. And so join with me as we pray this morning that we might truly be blessed. Know the happiness of knowing God and living for God. That comes through hearing his word and putting it into practice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have spoken to us. And so this morning, by your spirit, Father, help us to slow down. Help our ears to be unblocked. Help us not just to be glazed as we look over your word, but may your words go in. Lord, may your words change our hearts. And Lord, may we delight in keeping it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
the context that we have here as we look at this passage is of suffering. The church is suffering. If you look down to verse 9, the Apostle John writes, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation or struggles or sufferings and the kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was suffering, but he wasn't suffering alone. He says he's a companion in the suffering. And so the book of Revelation is written to a church that is suffering, to a church that is facing opposition on account of the word of God. It's written that God's people might take heart and in the words of John, might patiently endure. And these words we are told are coming from Jesus in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. So words from the Father through the Son, given to us finally through the Apostle. And so we need to listen. And so the suffering that John is going through in the midst of this is Rome. The Romans were causing persecution. The Romans were a threat. The Rome was, Rome was the mighty power. Rome ruled the world. The Caesars persecuted Christians, but then there was also the persecution from the Jews who opposed Jesus and the church. To follow Jesus in the days of John was costly. To be a Christian, you truly had to count the cost because you expected a consequence. And so ordinary men and women around the known world then were giving up everything for Jesus. And as the gospel spread, more and more men and women were giving up and willing to give up everything for Jesus. They were being imprisoned. They were being martyred. They were being exiled like John. What of us today? The book of Revelation has much to encourage us with. In Australia, we may not yet face imprisonment, but I think it would be right to say, and we could all acknowledge it, that in recent years, there has been increased hostility towards the things of God. What was probably once kept inside is now starting to be expressed. Many now regard the Bible as an immoral book. For in many ways, as a nation, we now call evil good and good evil. A few years back when Brian and I were still in Sydney, Sydney University had a big marketing campaign and big banners and posters were put up and things that were on these banners were unlearn truth, unlearn love. On it went. Now is the time to cast off the things that we have held on to. We need to rethink and redefine and embrace a new truth, a new system of sexuality, a new system of morality. And if you were at Sydney Uni during that time and you spoke out about the things of God, you did face opposition, as some in the Christian groups experienced. And we are being pressured to not be public with the things that we believe, with what God says. And so we need to constantly keep check, check of ourselves as Christians. Are we slowly silencing our speech on the things of God, just naturally, because we're learning how to conduct ourselves in a way that's appropriate Many years ago, well, say 20 years ago, there were things I would feel comfortable to have talked 
about with other people. Whereas now you do, you go through a little process. How are they going to respond? How are they going to react? Will there be rage? Persevering as a Christian can be hard for all sorts of reasons. And surely we can be tempted. Is it just too much? Is it worth hanging in there? Why not just go the easier way of the world? We see earlier in this chapter about how we're told it's going to end, that Christ is going to come on the clouds, he's going to return. But is that really going to happen? Is Jesus going to really be able to pull that off? And so we come to this revelation and we're going to look at the vision that God gives to John. And it's a vision that is given to the church. We see this in verse 10. John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Can see on the screen where those churches are. It says Asia Minor or Galatia today. If you looked, if you Googled that, that would be Turkey. But the Romans named that area Asia Minor. And if you see a little dot off the coast, that part of the Mediterranean Sea is called the Aegean Sea. That's where John had been sent in exile. And so the Spirit of God's appeared to him on the island of Patmos. He's writing down the visions to be sent and circulated through those seven churches and ultimately to the whole church. This letter, this prophecy, these words of hope are written for us today. When you consider the risen Lord Jesus, how do you think of him? A few weeks back, we considered Easter Sunday and that Christ rose victorious from the grave. Roughly 40 days later, we had Ascension Sunday where we remember that Christ has risen and is seated on the throne on high. But as you consider Christ today, what is your vision of him? How do you perceive him to be? But praise God, we have his word that tells us exactly how we should consider Christ today. And it's exactly how we as his people need to know Christ, that we won't lose heart, that we will patiently endure. The writings that we have before us are full of imagery. How do you describe something that's beyond description? So awesome, so beyond anything you've ever witnessed. This language is called apocalyptic language because it's, this was not uncommon in the day of John to have writings like this. And for the Jews, it was familiar. And if you know your Old Testament, much of the imagery is drawn straight out of things we have in the Old Testament. But they are word pictures. Not to be taken literally, but to be taken as metaphors. John is helping us understand things about Jesus that he cannot express. When, you, when you're really into something or have a wonderful experience or you don't just say it was green or the party was good. You say it was as green as, or the party was as fun as, or like. You use metaphors. If you stop and think about how you use your speech each daily, you would be surprised how often we use metaphors to help people understand what we are trying to say, or similes. 
And so I'll warn you this morning, if you've got a pen and paper, probably write down some of the cross-references. Don't feel the need to look all of them up, but I encourage you too to look them up later because I'll be moving around to show where a lot of these image, this imagery is drawn from. So as I give the reference, I encourage you to write it down. I was driving in this morning with Bryony and sort of talking, just remembered how people talk about left brain and right brain and how left brain people are very logical and right brain people are very creative. And so I thought to some degree, if you're a very left-brained, logical person, Romans is your book, a great book of reason and understanding. But if you're a creative person, I encourage you to delve into Revelation. It's imagery and picture and it's vivid. And a picture's worth a thousand words. And that's what we find here. But one more thing before we dive in. Remember where we started. Blessed are those who read hear and keep the goal of revelation is not try to work it all out to come up with all sorts of theories and speculations i'm sure you're familiar with lots of approaches we're told up front by god the goal is to keep it to obey it and so as we turn from one chapter to another as you do that with revelations the real question to be asking how must i obey jesus How am I being encouraged to stand fast and to keep living for him? That is the goal. And so as we consider the vision of Jesus Christ, that's the impression, that's the goal, is how is this vision? What is it teaching me as to how to respond to Jesus? What is it teaching me about how to obey him? And so let's dive in, and it's a glorious picture. In verse 12, I'm going to go image by image. Again, just write down the references. Don't feel the need to keep looking them up, but you're welcome to. So firstly, then I turned, verse 12, to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, if we try and understand what God's word said, it's helpful not just to go away and sit under a tree and work out what that word means. First, we should read around it in the Bible. And then if we can't find anything immediately, we continue to read further abroad from the scriptures. And if you remember, we've been told what those seven gold lampstands are. We don't have to guess. If you look down to verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven lights of the world, the seven lamps that are shining. And the picture we see there is that though in the midst of all the trouble, though everything is going on, where is Jesus? He is walking amongst his church. He is watching over his church. Just as Jesus said, he would never leave us nor forsake us. The great shepherd of the sheep amongst his flock and so we remember that even here at chapel street and as we've remembered rusden street christ walks amongst his church with whatever struggles and things we are facing jesus is near and then we have that picture of the son of man in verse 13 in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe 
and with a golden sash around his chest. I'm going to turn to Exodus 39. And we're going to read, well, I'll read verses 22 to 29. So Exodus 39. And you'll see the context, it's the priesthood. And God is saying to Moses, he is also to make the robe of the ephod woven of all blue. And the opening of the robe in it was like the opening in a garment with a binding around the opening so that it might not tear. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. They also made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe, reaches to the ground. Between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe for ministering as the Lord had commanded Moses. They also made the coats woven of fine linen for Aaron and his sons and the turban of fine linen and the caps of fine linen and the linen undergarments of fine twine linen and a sash of fine twine linen and of purple and blue and purple and scarlet yarns embroidered with needlework as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we hear about robes with respect to the priesthood, but turn with, if you wish, or write this down, Isaiah 22. And now we considered a royal context. So Isaiah 22, verses 20 to 23. The Lord says, In that day I'll call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah and I'll place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And so the picture of robes, if you were a Jew and you knew the Old Testament, would take you to imagery of priests and kings. Which is exactly, if you know Psalm 110, says he will be a royal priesthood. God's great Christ, the king, would also be the priest. And so here John in his vision and for us to see that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended on high, is there acting and as he walks amongst his church as king and priest with a royal sash, with a regal robe and a precious robe that reaches to the ground. Daniel 7's prophecy said, He is the one whom the Lord brings in on the clouds to give all power and all rule and authority. He is the sovereign high priest, the sovereign king. And Jesus walks amongst his church as the king and priest who will subdue the nations who will rule with an iron scepter, yet is ever interceding for us and loving us. And should any opposition come, whatever weakness and frailty we experience, he is perfectly fit ever there interceding and praying and keeping. And so the great king and high priest, and then we are told, verse 14, the hair of his head, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
the description of hair. In Proverbs, well, there's a couple of Proverbs. I won't turn to them. In Proverbs 16, 31, <laughs> Proverbs 20, 29, it talks about the hair of the aged. A lot of translations say hair that's silver or grey, but it's literally the hair of the aged. And the imagery there in the proverb is pointing to the wisdom and the splendor and the honor that is worthy of those who have lived a long life. You remember from Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. And so this picture of white as snow, as white as wool, points to righteousness. And so in his vision of Jesus, the one, the great high priest, the great king, he's conveying to us that he is the one with splendor and wisdom and knowledge and insight. We never have to worry whether Jesus has things under control. He's always in control. Everything is according to his perfect wisdom, no matter what comes. Everything has been accomplished as he has ordained it to be. Everything, every purpose and every will of Jesus is exactly what's carrying out. Or wisdom, or righteous wisdom. And his eyes are blazing fire. Or the ESV, his eyes were like a flame of fire. In Daniel, he has a vision and he sees the Son of Man and his eyes are a flame like fire. You turn forward to Revelation 19, the picture comes up again. I'll start at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. It's Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems and he has the name written that no one else knows but himself. His eyes are like flaming fire. Eyes that when you see Jesus look at you, he will look at you like no one else ever has. Piercing, penetrating, perfect, all-knowing. Perfect, righteous eyes from which you can hide nothing. Eyes that when you see Jesus looking at you, you know he can see everything. You cannot hide anything. The perf which makes him perfectly fit to be king and priest. Because he knows everything. He has perfect knowledge. When Jesus saw the Samaritan woman, he could tell her all about her life. When he saw Nathaniel under the tree, he could tell him the state of his heart. When he's confronted by the Jews, he knew exactly what they were thinking and how, what their hearts were like. Jesus sees everything. Knows everything. You can't hide anything from him. Instead, you're just laid bare. You're laid open before him. He truly is the one who searches hearts and minds. Nothing escapes him. Which means with regards to our enemies, we need not fear. Jesus knows everything. But also too for us, he knows exactly how we need to be cared for and loved. His all-seeing eyes. His feet, verse 15 like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. <clears throat> if you turn to Daniel chapter 10. <clears throat> I 
Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Jesus sees the Son of Daniel sees the Son of Man. And it says in Daniel 10, verse 6, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And in the context, if you just let your eyes glance down, it's about fighting and defending and accomplishing his purpose. It's about war and about battle. Psalm 2 tells us that he is the one who will rule with an iron scepter. He'll dash those who oppose him to pieces like pottery. Psalm 110 tells us, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. John turns and sees the Son of Man, Jesus. He shall not be shaken. He shall not be thwarted in his pursuit of evil. He is mighty and strong to tread, tread down the judgment and to crush his enemies. He's unshakable. He shall never be overcome. Though the nations rage and conspire, though God's people around the world are persecuted, none can dislodge him as king. He's the one who will come to tread the winepress and cannot be resisted. We've got to keep using our imagination and see Christ beyond what we can comprehend and realize even now it doesn't stop. Verse 15, it says his voice was like the roar of many waters. A number of years ago, I got to go to Niagara Falls. And the closer you get to the falls, the louder the roar becomes. And you can't hear anything around you people sort of have to shout and other noises are just become irrelevant they're just all you can hear is the rumbling and the roar of the waters it fills everything in ezekiel 43 you can jot this one down ezekiel chapter 43 verse 2 ezekiel has this vision of god and he says behold the glory of the god of israel was coming from the east and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. Again and again, we are seeing that the imagery that has been used here of Jesus, the risen Lord, is of God himself. This is divine imagery. The way that the Lord revealed himself and portrayed himself throughout the Old Testament is being applied to Jesus. No one will be able to silence the voice of Jesus. No one will be able to resist him. When he comes in his, with his word, all nations will tremble. His voice will be a roar. It will thunder across the earth. It's authority. It's power. It's majesty. Verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We look down to verse 20. What are those seven stars? The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so we see Jesus walks amongst his church, but in his hand, he's holding seven angels. Now, the word angel literally means messenger. And throughout the New Testament, as the word angel is used, it's the context that makes it clear whether the messenger is a heavenly messenger, an angel, or even an earthly messenger. 
And so people go either way on these. These could be seven angels that the Lord has appointed to watch over each of his churches. Or it's his seven messengers or the seven pastors for those churches who are in his hand to make the word go forth into the church. But the thing that's clear, however the word, the messengers come to his church, they are coming from his right hand. They are held in his hand of favor. The hand from which none can snatch. They come as his to share his word. Out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Isaiah 49 verse 2. Isaiah 49, verse 2. Pointing to the coming of the servant who is Jesus. Start at verse 1. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished quiver, arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. If you turn to Revelation 19, where we were just before. The one who comes on the horse, the great horse, with eyes of blazing fire, we're told in verse 15 of Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. The double-edged sword was the weapon of choice for the Roman army. It was an offensive weapon. It was a lethal weapon. But here we see that the word of Christ himself is a double-edged sword. What Jesus says will be. His judgments will come by his word. Though the world rages, though everything goes on against him, he will come forth and he will speak and his words will accomplish his judgments. And with the mouth, with the word of his mouth, he will strike down the nations. <clears throat> there is nothing that can resist the advancing word of God. And then he sees his face, verse 16, and it says his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If you remember at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, for a moment there, Christ's glory was revealed, the curtain was pulled back and he shone, radiant, we're told that one day the righteous will shine like the sun. Daniel uses the picture of shining like the brightness of the heavens, like stars. That's from Matthew 17, 2 is the transfiguration. Matthew 13, 34 is the righteous shining like the sun. Matthew 13, 34. And Daniel 12, 3 is the righteous shining like the stars forever. When he saw the face of the risen Lord, he saw glory and righteousness and brilliance and strength. Too dazzling for mortal eyes. A glory that is beyond our capability to experience or be in the presence of. Pure and holy. 
And so John has this vision. I'll read it once more, the pictures we've gone through, and I encourage you, even shut your eyes and grasp the picture. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, the churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, king and priest. The hair of his head was white, wisdom and righteousness, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire, omniscience and all-knowing. His feet like burnished bronze, power and authority, refined in a furnace. And his voice like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If you remember when the disciples were with Jesus in the storm, they were terrified of a storm. They didn't know what to do. But then Jesus stood up and calmed the storm. And then something extraordinary happens there too. Though they had been afraid of the storm, Suddenly they were terrified of Jesus. Here we see this. John and the church are suffering, facing persecution, being put to death, being martyred, their blood poured out. And whatever that could make you feel with anxiety and with fear and with stress when he sees Jesus, it's if all that fear diminishes and there's nothing compared to seeing Christ in his glory. divine Jesus Christ. I'll read some words. Authority, glory, sovereign, righteous, wise, holy, everlasting, all-seeing, all-knowing, crusher of evil, before all things, outlast all things, mighty, impossible to oppose, supreme in every way, steadfast, invincible, unshakable, That is the vision that God gave to his people and to us today of who our Lord Jesus is. And John fell down, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, full of fear. And at the end of verse 17, just in case you've missed it, fear not, I am the first and the last. If you have your Bible and you haven't turned to any, this one please do turn to Isaiah 44. You can all turn to this one, Isaiah 44. As John's seen this vision and he's conveyed it to us using this apocalyptic language of metaphor and drawing on the images that have been used of the Lord throughout the Bible, Jesus just makes it plain, I'm the first and the last. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus is God. And John got a glimpse of his glory. As we read this, we only get a glimpse of his glory because these metaphors just keep falling short with us even. 
That is why if we and I are to keep this, we need to meditate on these words, not just be interested in them. We need to go away and meditate on each of these images. Meditating means we need to prayerfully think, what does that actually mean? How's that going to apply? Firstly, for John, why would that be so encouraging for John to see feet of burnished bronze? Why is it so encouraging to see eyes of flaming fire? And for you and I to prayerfully consider that image in the light of our struggles or us wondering whether to persevere. Because it's only then as you meditate on it, does it really sink into your heart? Only then do you really know it so as to be able to keep it. Because if we have this vision of Jesus, it will shape us. It will shape how we think, how we respond. It will shape our priorities. It will shape the way we live. And that is what keeping it means. This is why at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You remember when Jesus prayed, Father, grant me the glory that I had in your presence before the creation of the world. This is it. The Son of God, the Word who is God. And he falls down in glory, in fear before his glory. And then a wonderful thing happens. He sort of skipped over it. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I am the first and the last, but in between he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, fear not. If you could say God has a favorite phrase for his people, it's fear not. You'd be surprised how often it comes up in the Bible, fear not. If you're a wicked person, fear That is exactly what you should fear because he is a righteous God. But if you are someone who has found forgiveness, you have laid hold of the lamb who was slain, Jesus, to comprehend this vision and know he went to the cross, poured out his life, that you might come before him without fear, to share in his glory and the mind-boggling promise that we are being transformed into his image and likeness, that we have been, sinners are being radically renewed that we shall shine like the sun he is the living one verse 18 i died and behold i'm alive forevermore first and the last just as jesus brought about the beginning sovereignly so as we look forward to the end we rest because he is the one who will sovereignly bring about the last And everything in between, he reigns and rules. Would Jesus say to you today, fear not? Have you made your peace with God through him? Because the greatest encouragement for God's people is that Jesus is coming back to redeem his people, to take them to glory, to be pulled out of all the struggles. But woven... Naturally through that is, are you going to be one of them? Will you call upon the name of the Lord and be saved? Have you humbled yourself before Jesus, the King? And know the forgiveness that comes through the cross, through his blood being shed, that 
He bore God's wrath in your place. Because it says, I have the keys of death and Hades. Your eternity is in his hands. What happens in the place of the dead is in his hands. He has the keys by which to open and close that door. Christ is the one who can unlock the door and bring you into glory, into heaven and everlasting life to save you from there. Is he the one who will lock you in? Come before him. Jesus is great. He is glorious. He is worthy. And so please meditate on these things. And so for John and the church and for us today with whatever direction our country may go, be assured that we become partners in the tribulation, patiently endure. He's got you. There's no one bigger or greater than Jesus that can snatch you away from him. Be assured he's in utter control and complete control. Be assured he knows what he's doing. And a simple summary of Revelation is Jesus wins. Be assured Jesus wins. That is the confidence that is just woven all the way through for God's people. No one can beat him. He wins. And keep your eyes on Jesus during troubles, though things rage around you or there's turmoil around you or maybe there's troubles that go on in your own heart. I encourage us to come back to this vision, to consider these words, meditate upon them and ask God to bring you comfort through them. Because in the end, our hope is not in ourselves or in those around us. Our hope is in Jesus. And that is why it's sure. And that is why it's logical to be, not be afraid. And that's why it's logical to keep persevering because of who our hope is in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your spirit bring this word to us today. Lord, may we not just hear, not just read, but Lord, may your spirit, by your spirit, through your spirit, may we hear. May these words really sink into our hearts and into our minds. That not just that we would be in awe of Jesus, but that we would rest in him. And so, Father, as we consider who Christ is, help us to, to keep all that he has called us to do. As he has said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And so, Father, please keep changing our lives, renewing us. As we fall down and worship the risen Lord, and as we put his words into practice, we are made more like him. In Jesus' name, amen.